I really enjoy self-deprecating humor. I really enjoy the idea of making fun of myself. I really like making fun of other people, but I understand that that can be hurtful. So if I don't make fun of myself, at least in equanimity, I have to be able to take it should someone else make fun of me. So I really enjoy when people sort of jibe at me, as long as we can do it back and forth. But I have noticed when you use self-deprecating humor, there are sort of three standard reactions. The first is that the other person will make fun of themselves as well. And that shows that they're joining in in the spirit of the adventure, like let's point out our own faults and foibles. Let's examine ourselves and hopefully, maybe as a result, we will improve slightly as human beings because we recognize our own failings. Then there are people who laugh and smile and often get a little bit uncomfortable. And it's because they don't want to make fun of you and they realize that the things you're making jokes about are real and so they don't know how to join in so they decide to say nothing at all which i think is a very appropriate reaction if you don't know how to respond to something not responding is usually the best option simply because it means you're not making a mistake you're not saying the wrong thing then there's the third class of people and it's the people who join in but they also make fun of you so what they're seeing is you've opened yourself up, you've said, I have this weakness or this flaw, and then they too decide to go after that weakness and flaw and exploit it for humor. And what they're actually hoping is that as a result, they will make themselves look better. So you're standing next to me and I say, oh, you know, I'm losing my hair. And they go, yeah, he's losing his hair. What they're actually saying is I'm much cooler than that guy or I'm better than that guy because I still have all my hair. You can use this as a litmus test for what kind of person someone is. If they fall into one of these three categories, that third category is generally a person you don't want to spend a huge amount of time with or you don't want to trust because they aren't looking at you as a friend or an equal. They're looking at you as someone to exploit or someone they can attack when you show any form of weakness. So there's a little pop psychology you can take with you into the world. Make a few self-deprecating jokes in any situation and you'll actually pretty quickly find out what kind of people you have around you. Cora question, what are some bad things about eating rice? Uh, now that I live in Japan, rice has become a big part of my diet. It's sort of a staple. Every restaurant you go to, you'll get a bowl of rice. Every meal you have, you'll probably get a bowl of rice. That's a very common thing. So yeah, I have had a lot of experience with rice now, uh, probably more than the average human being. I mean, more than even Japanese people, just because I eat extra rice, just to prove that I, I can eat more rice than other people. And I find the bad thing primarily about eating rice is getting the fork into an individual rice kernel to eat it. So it takes ages. 
as you sit there and poke away at the rice one at a time, because this is something you should know, is that it's actually rude to eat multiple pieces of rice at the same time. If you're using chopsticks, you have to pick them up one at a time and eat them. It takes hours out of your day. Like I will spend 60 to 70% of my waking time eating rice, individual rice grains at a time. If you're using a fork, like I do being a Westerner, I'm not actually allowed to touch chopsticks. I have to stab the rice. And again, it's very rude to take a second stab. So if you don't get the rice on the first try, you actually have to throw away that bowl and they get another bowl of rice and then start eating from that one. And again, if you miss, you have to throw away that bowl. So as you all know, as everyone's probably heard, etiquette's a very important thing in Japan. And it's very important to get it right. So those are some rules you should keep in mind. If you come to Japan, try to make sure that and you get rice, because you're going to get rice, eat them individually. And if you miss one, it's let's say you pick it up with your chopsticks and drop it, or you go to grab one with your chopsticks and you miss. If you stab it with your fork and you miss, you have to throw away that bowl and ask for a new bowl. Okay, here's a question. It's a Quora question. It's a real question. And that's the kind of stuff I actually like. If you were locked in a room with a gorilla for 10 minutes with only a kitchen knife and pepper spray, would you survive? Well, I actually think you could because gorillas aren't actually inherently violent towards people. All you have to do is give him the kitchen knife and allow him to take the lead in the kitchen so that whatever he decides to make, you could help out and really sort of create a good relationship between you and the gorilla. Uh, the pepper spray is a nice little side touch because whatever he makes, you could add a little spice to it. And that would really sort of help liven up the atmosphere, maybe give it a little Latin spicy feel to the food. And I think that way you and the gorilla could actually walk out together just being best of friends. Realistically speaking, if you don't want to do a joke answer, if you're in a room with a gorilla, all you have to do is show subservience to it, maybe even roll up into a little ball, and you'd probably be fine because it would be showing subservience to the gorilla, and the gorilla then has no reason to actually fight you. The knife and the pepper spray are essentially irrelevant. You could probably be put in a cage with a gorilla, show subservience without any weapons. He probably wouldn't kill you or do anything at all. He might just take an interest. Oh, there you are, you're a thing, but you're no threat to me, so what do I care? Because gorillas aren't inherently aggressive. If you've actually seen documentaries and stuff, people are around them quite regularly, and as long as you sort of fall into their social norms, everything seems to work out fairly well most of the time. The reason I know you don't make eye contact with them is because I went to the Inuyama monkey park and my son, being a child at the time, didn't know that you don't make eye contact with the monkeys. He did, this very small monkey that they let free roam around the place. Uh, he made eye contact with it and it went for him. It got really aggressive, made a lot of noise and went for him. And I actually had to kick the thing. I sort of punted it really far away. I feel really bad about it, but the choice was the monkey or my son. So I chose my son in this case and did an awful thing to a monkey. But I feel like maybe that was the only choice I had in that situation because there wasn't really much else I could do in the time frame I had to make decisions. So I'd probably make that same decision again. But... As for this question, I think there is a real answer, and the real answer is just, you know, do your best to make friends with the gorilla, and you'll probably be in pretty good shape. You might even have a gorilla friend, and then he could mess up that bully from high school. So here's a weird thought of the day, and it came from a conversation I had where someone basically was citing their education as the reason for their beliefs, and I, as a counterpoint, was trying to cite my practical experience. So... It came down to a very uncomfortable conversation for the other person because I started pointing out some facts about education. So the first problem is you go to university and everyone 
is in the same environment and basically everyone agrees. Even the people who disagree agree that going to university is important. They agree that what they're doing is important. Uh, they need to do that because they've paid so much money and put so much effort into getting into university that their self-worth and self-value is almost based on this premise being successful and important. The problem is when they get out and actually start encountering people who disagree with them for different reasons, reasons that wouldn't be explored in a university environment, like in my case, practical experience. But here's a question that most people who go to university don't ask themselves, and it's how do you know that what you believe is true? More specifically, how do you know what you've been taught is true? It's a very difficult question for people to accept because then if they actually come to the conclusion that what they learned during their education isn't true, isn't real, then what was the point of all that education? Now, here's the thing they're not thinking about in that moment, in that situation, is that learning stuff is inherently valuable, even if it's not true. Reading fantasy novels, playing video games actually does have value. You learn things, you learn different ideas, you learn how to solve puzzles or do things. There is value from learning pretty much anything. If I learn how to fix something that's certainly outside the realm of my expertise, I have still learned something that will benefit me. If I read a book with a different idea in it, even if it's completely fictional, there's another element that's been added to my intelligence that I can draw upon should I come up in a different situation where that kind of thinking would be appropriate. But this is the problem with non-sciences because things like psychology and education, if you go back to the 70s, is what they taught people in psychology or educational theory in the 1970s the same as it is taught today? It is absolutely not. It is a totally different field with totally different ideas from 30, 40 years ago. Then if you project that into the future, do you think from today, 30, 40 years in the future, that they will be teaching the exact same curriculum if they will be teaching the exact same things as they are at the moment? Absolutely not. It will have evolved even further. So... Is what they were teaching in the 1970s not true and correct? Well, by today's standards, yes, that is true. But that means what you've learned today will not be true by standards in the future. The difference with the sciences, sciences tend to teach things that are factual. They teach numbers and uh, like the theory of gravity, which people always say it's a good theory, but it's a good theory that's held true for as long as we've had the theory. So we're pretty much sure it's fact. And if one day the theory of relativity breaks, well then actually science would be open to changing it, but you actually have to have that happen first. Until then, they'll still keep teaching the theory of, relati uh, the theory of gravity the way it is right now. But this is maybe important for young people who've just gotten out of university and all their belief systems are based upon what they've just learned and those things are absolute and true. They're absolutely not. And the sooner you get that in your head, the sooner you can be more accepting of other people's ideas and actually listen, the sooner you can actually apply the idea of what you've learned, like the theories and the ideas and the techniques, to new situations and new ideas and actually become a more valuable member of whatever community you've joined. So I'm talking very specifically, of course, about my workplace, but I see this as applicable to everyone. You should basically consider your education as not true. And if you do that, if you can actually approach the world that way, you can actually see the world for what it is. I have this information. Maybe it's correct, maybe it's not. It has taught me how to think and analyze and do things. And if I can use that and apply it to new situations and new ideas, even if I have to throw away the things I've been taught as correct, I will be more adept and more capable in whatever position I end up in in the future. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast.